looking at Matthew chapter 20, going all the way from verse 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. There's a very important question that needs to be asked from this text. What is greatness? What is greatness? And we're not just talking about any kind of greatness today. We're talking about true greatness. True greatness. Because there's all kinds of false greatnesses that uh, are being portrayed to us today through advertising and the TV and the media and and your friends and neighbors and family and it's just, we're being bombarded with false greatness. This 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 world, the evil system, this world that we live in is is just filled with all kinds of ideas of what greatness is. In fact, William Barclay, who's a commentator, had this to say. Listen to what he says. Quote, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls and who are at his beck and call, or by his intellectual standing and his academic eminence, or by the number of committees of which he is a member, or by the size of his bank balance and the material possessions which he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. End quote. <clears throat> That's a bold statement to make, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say about these various things. And what does he have to say about what is true greatness? Because frankly, it doesn't matter that much what the world says, does it? What we want to know is what does Jesus Christ think? What's his opinion of what is greatness? Well, in our passage here today, Jesus, he starts off by telling us what greatness is not. What, what is it not? That we're going to see the negative here, and then Jesus will show us what true greatness looks like, and then he's actually going to illustrate it for us in this passage. So let's see what the words of Holy Scripture have to say. Look with me. Matthew 20, verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's, by the way, James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand, and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
we'll stop there for the moment. So Jesus proceeds to give us various ways, false uh, ways. These are worldly ways to greatness. And he's, he's showing that these things are common in our world. A lot of people believe these things, but these are not the ways to true greatness, at least in God's eyes. In fact, Jesus mentions four wrong ways to greatness in this passage. And the first way to this false greatness is through political power play. Through political power play. We see that particularly in verses 20 and 21. And it's really seen in the, in the mother's attempt here to persuade Jesus to, to give her two sons the highest places of honor in Jesus' kingdom. They say, hey, I want, I want my sons to be on your left and the other one to be on your right. These, these would be considered these places of honor. To, to be sitting next to the king was a place of honor. One of the most common tactics it's been this way for centuries and centuries throughout all human history, but uh, one of the most common tactics to get ahead has been using the influence of people, even family members, and, and using your family to one's advantage. These people use manipulation to get whatever they want. Uh, it might be they, maybe they want some political office. Maybe it's a promotion in a business. Maybe they want some lucrative contract in their business. Whatever it is that people want, some people are willing to, to use people and, and, and manipulate to get what they want. You've probably heard that saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know that counts. Right? It's who you know. And, and people are willing to use people, manipulate however they can, to accomplish their ends, that their purposes, their goals that they want. And that's kind of what's going on here. If you read the other gospel accounts, by the way, you'll, you'll find out that uh, James and John put their mother up to, to going to Jesus to ask Jesus. Uh, I don't know if they're just being wimpy or what it is here, but that's what's going on. So, so it's really these guys are behind the requests, and of course, like any any good mother, mothers want what's best for their children, and in the process, she would she would receive recognition and honor if her sons received recognition and honor. So it's clear the mother is is speaking on behalf of her two sons. In fact, uh, it's interesting. Jesus addresses James and John, not the mother, because he knows who's really behind the request. It's interesting, the, the gospel according to Mark actually makes no mention of her at all. It's James and John who are the ones that are mentioned. So the three of them may have been trying to capitalize on their, their family relationship to Jesus. Uh, by comparing the various gospel accounts, uh, we learned that the, uh, uh, the, the woman who stood vigil near the cross when Jesus died on the cross uh, becomes evident uh, that the mother of James and John was named Salome, and she's actually the mother, or sorry, the sister of Mary, uh, that uh, who is the Mary, the mother, the earthly mother of Jesus. So this actually makes her, James and John's mother, it makes her Jesus' aunt, which makes James and John Jesus' first cousins. So there's a family connection here, okay? 
you, you need to understand that to, to get the big picture of what's going on. So, in, di- in addition to relying on the relationship as Jesus' cousins, the, these guys are trying to bring in the big guns, if you will. Let's bring in the big gun. Let's bring in Jesus' aunt here. And, and he's going to be able to put some pressure on Jesus to get what we want. <laughs> you ever done that? Oh, sure. We do those sort of things all the time. If we don't think we have enough pressure to put on someone, well, we just will bring in somebody else we think has more persuasion. And that's what they're trying to do here. So maybe they thought uh, they could somehow play on Jesus' affections for maybe his own mother by having her, her sister approach Jesus to ask a favor. The fact that James and John had their mother make the request suggests they, they probably knew the request was not a legitimate one. I'm assuming they also knew that it was going to really make the other ten disciples angry, which they, 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 they were successful at that, weren't they? The Bible says the other ten, the ten were indignant. It means they're angry. They're not happy. So the request was purely self-seeking. It was for her, by the way, as well as for them. They're just being selfish, self-centered in this request. And so as their mother, she could, uh, if, if her sons were able to get this exalted position, then she would be able to boast not only about her sons, but she would end up having some sort of prestige enhanced on her as well. So at this point in history, James and John, they, these guys were not noted for their shyness. Now, by God's grace, God ends up using them, and, and they, they do end up becoming, uh, as far as we know, quite humble people, and God does use them in great ways. But at this point in history, <laughs> these guys are not shy by any stretch of imagination. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 3, Jesus actually calls them the sons of thunder. The, these are the guys who want to call down lightning and, and just destroy people, and, <laughs> and they just they didn't understand why Jesus had come in his first coming. And so the request of Jesus was very bold. In effect, they were claiming that, hey, you know, of all the great people in the entire world who've ever lived and will live, they're they're actually suggesting to Jesus that we're the two best out of everyone. That's a bold statement to make. And so James and John longed for prestige and eminence. They wanted to be exalted over the other apostles, but Jesus shows us here that is not the way to true greatness. Not, not greatness in God's kingdom anyway. Maybe here on earth. Sometimes it works here on earth, but not in God's kingdom. The second wrong way to true greatness is through self-serving ambition. We see some self-serving ambition going on here. These you know, the request, for example, of James, John, and their mother was just flat-out foolish. Bypassing the mother, Jesus here answered the two brothers directly. He knows everything. He knows who's really behind this request is not Salome. It's James and John. In fact, Jesus says, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? course jesus knows the answer to that question the three had no idea of the full implications of their request to have these exalted positions of being at jesus right hand and his left 
how could they possibly know all the implications, everything that would come with those places of honor? They couldn't. No way. By the way, the cup. Jesus talks about the cup here. He's not referring to a literal cup. So what is he talking about? Well, the cup that Jesus was about to drink was the cup of suffering and death, which, remember last week in the preceding paragraph, he talks about that. It's the third time, in fact, he foretold his suffering and death and that he would rise again on the third day. He just finished describing that here in verses 18 and 19. So Jesus was saying, hey guys, don't you realize by now that the way to eternal glory is not through worldly honor? It's actually through suffering. Haven't you guys heard what I've been teaching about? You know, I've been teaching about persecution. It's through persecution that blessing comes. It's by taking up your crosses and following me that blessing comes. They didn't understand the full picture, did they? Well, here's what one commentator says about the cup I found helpful. Listen to this, quote, To drink the cup meant to drink the full measure, leaving nothing. It was a common expression that meant to stay with something to the end, to endure to the limits, whatever the cost. The cup that Jesus was about to drink was immeasurably worse than the physical agony of the cross or the emotional anguish of being forsaken by his friends. The full measure of his cup was taking the world's sin upon himself. End quote. So with great compassion here, the Lord assured these two brothers, and here's what he, he tells them. He says, my cup you shall drink. But it would not be in their own power, but the Bible says it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that they would be able to suffer, and they suffer greatly for their master's sake. In fact, if you know anything about what the book of Acts says and what history tells us, we know, for example, that James was the first apostle, uh, first apostle to be martyred. Read Acts chapter 12. James was the first apostle to be martyred. And then John, uh, well, they, they tried to kill John. <laughs> We're not successful. John was eventually uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, labored very hard there in that very uh, difficult place. Eventually, John uh, died of well, so-called natural causes as a very old man. So as Jesus knows, these guys did indeed, they shared in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. But nevertheless, Jesus told the brothers to sit at my right hand and, and at my left, this is not mine to give. Well, if it's not Jesus' right to give that kind of a blessing and honor, then whose is it? Well, Jesus said it was my Father's. It's my Father's right to give. So not only were James and John being presumptuous here and asking this of Jesus, it was Jesus' prerogative to grant this. Uh, sorry, it's not Jesus' prerogative to grant this request. He says it's God the Father's prerogative. So it would not be on the basis of favoritism. It's not on the basis of ambition that these honors would be bestowed. But you know what? It's the Father's sovereign choice. Personal ambition is not a factor in the eternal 
sovereign plan of God. You and I and these these apostles could uh, have all kinds of self-serving ambition, but that's not how you get ahead in the kingdom of God. That's not what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. So, in reality, what these guys were doing was actually sinful. It was foolish. And frankly, it was just a useless waste of time and effort. Number three. The third wrong way to greatness is through dominant dictatorship. Through dominant dictatorship. We see that often in our world. In fact, Jesus saw this even in his own day. If you look at verse 25, Jesus talks about this because he says that, uh, he says in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. <laughs> Talks about various Gentiles who lorded over. Lorded over, that's an interesting phrase. Very strong term. It carries the idea of ruling down. Ruling down on people. Looking down on people. Using this authority and using it to, to their own ends. Not to serve people. <laughs> Don't you, you have to laugh when you hear someone who's, in, uh, who's a counselor or an MP called a public servant. There's irony in that. They're supposed to be the public servant. They're our servants. We pay their wages. They're there for us. But how many people, when they get in an office and some a governor or an MP or, well, in this case, you know, I mean, the Herods and the Caesars and the Pharaohs of the worlds, how often do they use that authority to their own end? Not to serve people, but to get rich, to be famous. Happens a lot. Jesus talks about these Gentiles who lorded over their subjects. And this was something that was quite common in Jesus' day even more so in our own, where virtually ever, every government of that particular day was some form of a dictatorship, and, and often these were tyrants. I mean, look at the one that Jesus had to put up with, for example, Herod. King Herod. I mean, this, this guy is willing to kill his own family members so that he can, he can remain king, get, get to the positions he wants to be and stay there. I mean, the Caesars, the, the Roman Caesars of that age... Uh, did dastardly things. The pharaohs in Egypt, again, the same. Not, they were not known as nice people. But the world seeks greatness often through power, and, and we see this epitomized in the rulers of the Gentiles here that Jesus is talking about. Dominant dictatorship is a way of the world. It's not the way to true greatness. Number four, the, the fourth wrong way to greatness that Jesus talks about is through charismatic control. And I'm not talking about the charismatic movement. This is not a religious movement that Jesus is talking about. But you'll notice in verse 25, kind of in the middle there, Jesus uses an interesting expression. He, he talks about the great ones. The great ones is is a, a phrase that's summed up in one Greek word. And in this Greek word you have Mega. Mega. We use the English word mega to talk like mega mitre 10 or, you know, whatever, you know, it's something that's, that's big and supposedly awesome and better. Megaloi. These are the great ones. 
It carries the idea of one who is distinguished, eminent, illustrious, or noble. It represents those who have high personal appeal, have achieved high stature, at least in the eyes of the world. These are people who seek to control other people by personal influence. These people often use things such as flattery, charm, attractiveness. And they'll use all of their flattery, their charm, and their attractiveness maybe on television or through their books or their blogs, their advertisements, whatever it might be. They use these things for their own selfish purposes. Hey, just send some money. I'll pray for you that God would bless you. That's the sort of stuff people do today. But charismatic control is the wrong way to greatness, Jesus says. As you look at verse 25, Jesus talks, He says, hey, these rulers, the Gentiles, lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But notice what Jesus says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. Jesus is saying, this is not the way to true greatness. You're not to strive to be so-called this great one, this megaloi. Well, if that's not the way to true greatness, then how do we attain true greatness then? What does that look like? What does God think about true greatness? Well, Jesus answers that here for us in verses 26 through 28. let's, Let's see how we can be great. Jesus says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus teaches us here what true greatness looks like. In this particular passage, Jesus, as He often does, kind of turns things upside down. Puts it on its head. Turns the world's greatness upside down. The world... Taught, taught and thought the sort of things that Jesus shot down here. The world often thinks of great people as charismatic personalities, dominant, powerful people, great intellects, lots of money, great abilities. Jesus just turns the world's greatness upside down. He shows the self-serving, the self-promoting, self-glorying ways of the world are really the exact opposite of spiritual greatness. In reality, these things have no place in God's kingdom. God says, these things should not be among you. Shall not be so among you. Unfortunately, though, even in in churches around the world, there are many people who continually seek recognition. They they go through the, the worldly power plays, They try to control other people, and they're doing it all for selfish advantage. You probably know of some people in various uh, forms of leadership, whether it's on television or in churches or some ministry, where they end up becoming quite wealthy. They got the Learjets. They got the multiple Rolls Royces and the Ferraris and the Porsches and mansions around the world and the yachts and all these sort of things, and and they say, well, see, God's blessing me. Right? I, I've got this great faith, so God's blessing me. Really? Well, <laughs> often these sort of things come from 
people who can't afford to give. But a tragic number of Christian leaders have gained great followings by appealing to people's emotions and their worldly appetites. Hey, give to me, give to to my ministry or whatever, and, and then God will bless you. But that's not to be so among Christ's disciples today. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, whoever wishes to be great among you. Notice the word great. That's a key word here. Great. You want to be great in God's eyes? Which is the only thing that really matters. You want want to be great according to God's standards? Jesus says, you need to be a servant. A servant. This kind of greatness is pleasing to God because it's humble. It's self-giving. The way to God's greatness is through pleasing Him. It's through serving other people in His name for His honor and glory. In God's eyes, the one who is great is the one who is a willing servant. We don't have, I'm not aware that any of us have servants today, so we probably need to talk about what does it mean to be a servant. The word servant, by the way, interesting word in the Greek. Uh, let Let me give you the Greek word. You probably come up with an English word. It's very similar. It's the Greek word diakonos. Diakonos. We get an English word that we use in church leadership called deacons. Deacons are servants of the church. That that English word deacon derives from diakonos. And the original Greek word, by the way, was just originally was just a purely secular word. It referred to a person who did menial labor, uh, people who would do things such as house cleaning, serving tables, which is why in Acts chapter 6, when the church was in a, in a conflict situation and these, these, uh, these Greek-speaking people, uh, Greek-speaking Jews in the synagogue needed help, they, they, they called these deacons to serve, to serve the tables, to meet people's physical needs. It was not a term of dishonor, but simply described the lowest level of hired help. These were people who were hired to help out in homes and and, and on their, their properties. But notice in the next phrase, Jesus kind of intensifies here and kind of ramps it up even greater in the next phrase. If you look in your Bible, uh, it's an interesting description of God's way to greatness because he says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. It's a different Greek word. He doesn't use servant here. Then he says slave. The position and work of a slave were much lower and actually more demeaning than those of a servant. A servant was hired. A servant was paid. But a slave did not belong to himself. A slave belonged to the master. The master could tell the slave to do whatever he wanted to. A slave was just a piece of property. It was chattel. That slave had to do whatever the master told him to do. And in the Roman Empire, slaves could be killed at will. Whatever the master wanted done, he could do. The slave had nothing. Not even his own body. Not even the clothes on his own back. Didn't belong to himself. He was the personal property of someone else. Jesus says, that's what we're supposed to be. 
Because the reality is, the Bible says in Corinthians, our body, our, our, our whole life does not belong to us. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, the Bible says. Therefore, you must glorify God with your body. The cost of true greatness, and it will cost, but it, it, it's going to cost you humility. It's, it's humble, selfless, sacrificial service on your part. Humble, selfless, sacrificial service. And so the Christian then who desires to be great, the, the, the person, if you want to be first in God's kingdom, then you need to be this kind of a person that Jesus is talking about here. You need to be someone who, who just gives up everything to the Master. You must be one who is willing to serve in hard places, Go to the uncomfortable places, the lonely places, do the uncomfortable things. Do whatever the Master demands of you, recognizing you're not your own anyway. God has bought you with a price. Therefore, glorify Him. You must be willing to go to the place, no matter what that place is, even if you're unappreciated, even if it means persecution. The reality is time is short. Eternity is long. And so you and I got to be willing to spend and be spent, just as Jesus was willing to do. We, we see his example here, don't we? Jesus was, as verse 28 says, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see the great example of true greatness here in verse 28. The true greatness, the model, if you will, the pattern that you and I are to follow is Jesus. And I want you to notice the emphasis in verse 28, by the way. Emphasis in the words, even as the Son of Man, even as the Son of Man gave His life, gives us this pattern, this model, this example, you and I are to follow that, even as He did. And here's the point, my friends. What Jesus says about himself is something that should characterize his followers. Jesus is saying, hey, look at me. I am your pattern. I am the supreme example. And so if you want to be great, don't look at the world. Look at me, Jesus says. Well, if you look at Jesus incarnate role when he became a man jesus did not come to be served in his first coming it was not about him he came to serve other people the bible talks about this in many places let me just give you one philippians 2 it's on the screen it says this although he existed in the form of god he jesus did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And notice, Jesus humbles himself, and because of his humility, God the Father exalts him. God's the, God the Father is the one doing the exalting here, not Jesus. 
So Jesus is the supreme example of humility. He's the supreme pattern of servanthood. What does it mean and look like to be a servant? We got the best possible example there is. And why is he the supreme example? Well, even though he is the sovereign one of the entire universe, even though he's the creator of the universe, he's your creator. What does he do? He subjected himself to humiliation, even choosing the, the worst form of death known at that time. Death on a cross. He's the most exalted because he faithfully endured the most humiliation. The Bible calls Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he lays all that aside. He gave his life to serve others. If you look at the next statement in your Bible, Jesus presents the first explicit New Testament teaching about the redemptive work of the Messiah. Because he, he, he says there at the end of verse 28 uh, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The primary way he's showing this is he gave his life as a ransom for many. So, the Bible says that Jesus would become the substitute atonement. He vicariously suffers for the sins of mankind. We deserve to suffer, but Jesus takes our place. He pays the ransom. Ransom was, was a payment that needed to be made for somebody. Sometimes even even uh, kidnappers will ask for a ransom. When a kidnapper steals someone, a child, or, or it might even be a, a ship, you know, sailing on the east coast of Africa, they'll ask for payment, a ransom. You can get your ship back, you can get your child back if you pay me a million dollars or whatever it might be. Well, we had a debt that could never be paid. But Jesus paid, He paid the ransom for those who trust in Him. He did not simply give His life as an example for others. Although that's important, we don't want to underestimate Jesus' perfect life. He was no just a a mere martyr for some godly cause. No, Jesus was far more and far greater than that. He wasn't just merely an example of selflessness. He died as a ransom for those who put their faith in Him. The word ransom is a very interesting word. It was used for the redemption price of a slave. If if you were unfortunate enough to be a slave in the Roman Empire, you would stand on that slave block and, and various people who had money could come along and they would bid to get you as a slave. You had no right to resist. You're just property. And if somebody paid enough money, they could get you and they would own you. And they would, uh, if they were a nice owner, then sometimes, occasionally, they might actually set you free if somehow there was some compassion in their heart. But they had to pay in order to do that. The Bible says an unbeliever is a slave to sin. You, in fact, you have three enemies. You're, you're not only a slave to your indwelling sin, but you're a slave to Satan, and you're a slave to death. You're a slave to this world. The unbeliever is a slave, and it was to redeem men from those various slaveries that Jesus gave his life as a ransom in exchange for sinners. Jesus' ransom was paid 
But do you know who it was paid to? Some people like to say it was paid to Satan. That's not the case. The ransom was not paid to Satan. The ransom was not paid to this world, and is certainly not paid to your indwelling sin. You know who the ransom was paid to? Paid to God the Father. A price had to be paid. Jesus paid that ransom to His Father, and in the process, propitiation happened. Read 1 John chapter 2. Propitiation is where Jesus becomes your wrath absorber. And instead of God the Father pouring out His wrath on you, you receive Jesus' righteousness, which is imputed to you. God's holy justice is satisfied. God never overlooks sin, my friends. There is a penalty to sin, and it's called death. Jesus died so that you don't have to receive eternal death. And by the way, it's more than sufficient to cover the sins of everyone. Jesus' death and His his resurrection is sufficient to pay the penalty for everybody's sin. But of course, it's only effective and valid for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's only valid for those who believe in Jesus. And so it's, when, when you look at verse 28, it's in, it's in that sense that Jesus' redemption is for many as opposed to all. Because we're, hopefully none of us are universalists. We don't believe that all people eventually make their way to heaven. Jesus certainly didn't believe that. Read Matthew chapter 7. In fact, Jesus says that broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many find that way. Few find their way through the narrow gate into heaven. Jesus certainly is not a universalist. But all those who put their faith in Him find their sins are forgiven. The penalty is paid. God's wrath is absorbed through His Son. So we see that here that Christ is the pattern for all to follow in being servant leaders. You want to be a servant leader? Don't follow the world's models. Follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? He gave His life. In the process, gained eternal glory and the esteem of God as well as us. So my friends, this is the path to greatness. And in case we still haven't got it, Jesus shows us what true greatness looks at in the very next paragraph. Alright, so let's look at verse 29. Now I want you to see how Jesus shows greatness. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. That ends chapter 20. Jesus, in many ways, is a living example of of what servanthood looks like, true humility. What does greatness look like in God's kingdom? 
is you need to understand something as we look at this passage. Number one is that beggars were considered outcast in Jewish society. They were considered outcast in Jewish society. And, and blind people as well. Uh, if you read John chapter 9, and many people in Jesus' day uh, believed that if you were blind or you had some other physical difficulty, you had that as a result of either your, your own sin or your parents' sin. So these kind of people, whatever their physical difficulty might be, were considered outcast. They were looked down upon. They were ridiculed, slandered, gossiped, and so forth. They weren't looked after. There was no dole. There was no welfare system in that day to take care of people like this. And so these men are out here begging. Uh, they probably knew that there would be a lot of people on that road going to Jerusalem, and they're hoping for some money. If you know anything of the holy men of Jesus' day, the rabbis and so forth of Jesus' day, you know that few holy men would have anything to do with beggars. It would have been very unusual uh, for someone of, of Jesus' stature and position in life to, uh, to have anything to do with a beggar. And the reason for that is because they would, in the process of even going and talking to them and touching them, by the way, notice Jesus touched these men. Touching them, Jesus would have been considered unclean. But Jesus doesn't care about that. He knows he's not going to be made unclean by touching them. He purposely does this to show his pity. Some translations use the word compassion there. Jesus is showing his pity, his compassion, his love for these outcasts of Jewish society. It's a great word there in verse 34. Jesus clearly, over and over again, we see him having pity and compassion on people who are helpless, people who are in need, people who are the outcast of society. Again, remember, he's our pattern, our example, our model. Let me ask you, we got three different groups here. Which one are you? Which group do you come into? All right? Which group do you fit in? Well, the first group we see here are the spiritually blind. Spiritually blind beggars. As you walk through life, as you live your life, you will constantly come in contact with people who are spiritually blind. They are beggars. They are helpless. They cannot help themselves. They require help from outside themselves. And by the way, if you're a Christian, that was you. That is you. That's everyone at some point in their life. The only hope is Jesus. The only hope is Jesus. They're calling out to the one, the only one who could help them. And he did. My friend, if that's you, you find yourself empty-handed, poor in spirit, having nothing to offer except your sin, then you need to call out to Jesus Christ who offers you hope. Well, that, if you're a believer, that's not you. But maybe you might find yourself in the next category. Maybe you're, you're some, in some way, shape, or form a follower of Jesus Christ, but you actually hinder people in coming to Christ. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that we as a church should ever do that, that you as an individual should ever do that, but we do at times. 
You ever heard that phrase that you might be the only Bible that an unbeliever might read? What kind of an impression do unbelievers get of God when they look at you, when they hear you speak? They, they see your life. You may not be as, as verbally abusive as these guys were. You may not tell the unbeliever, shut up! Leave Jesus alone! You may not be that bold. But through your apathy, through your, shall we say, your practical atheism, you show that God is not that important. He can't be bothered with you. I hope that's not you. Unfortunately, I'd say there's been many times in my life that that's me. I give the wrong impression of God. I'm not glorifying Him as I should. The good news is that God can transform us. We can become Christ-like, and that's the third category. Let me ask you, are you a little Christ? A Christian, a a Christ-like one, a godly one? We're called to be like Christ. He is, after all, our example, our pattern, the primary model that we're to live our lives after. So what do we need to do here, my friends? We need to seriously examine our hearts. Ask God to show us, where do we really stand before Him? Do we have a relationship with Him? And if we do, how's the fellowship doing now? Because only real, true believers have fellowship with God. And so we need to avoid the world's ways of seeking greatness. We need to... And by the way, the only way you're going to be able to filter out the world's ways of greatness from God's ways of greatness is through Scripture. You've got to saturate saturate your mind and heart. Use this as your filter, your guide, and say everything you see and think and hear as you're being bombarded every day of every week of every year, you have to run it through Scripture. That's your only hope. So avoid the world's ways of seeking greatness and then follow Christ's example. Because true greatness is only found in humble servanthood. True greatness is only found in humble servanthood. May God be gracious to us and allow us to be like His Son.